Hello and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with Paola Antonelli, and we're delighted that our guest in this episode is the pioneering Pakistani humanitarian architect and designer and one of our design heroines, Yasmin Lari. Yasmin, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you, Alice. Thank you. Yasmin was born in 1941 in what is now Pakistan. She studied architecture in the UK and then became Pakistan's first female professional architect after opening a practice in Karachi, which became one of the country's most successful architecture firms. In 1980, she co-founded the Heritage Foundation of Pakistan to conserve its increasingly fragile architectural heritage. And in 2000, Yasmin left the practice to focus on that work. Five years later, when the Kashmir earthquake killed over 86,000 people and displaced millions more, Yasmin went to the region to help displaced people to repair or rebuild their homes using mud, stone, wood and other debris. She has continued that work ever since, training volunteers to reconstruct and repair in their communities, teaching women the restoration craft skills required by the Heritage Foundation, experimenting with low cost, zero carbon, zero waste building materials and techniques, always encouraging and empowering people to support themselves and their communities, not only as designers and architects, but as entrepreneurs. And her personal goal is to enable this participatory network to build a million urgently needed new households in Pakistan by 2024. So Yasmin, you have made an extraordinary impact on humanitarian architecture over many years during a period in which interest in the field from architects, designers, NGOs and others has soared. Yet the scale, frequency and threat of natural and man-made disasters has risen much, much faster. This is an intensely complex and contentious sphere, not least as it's dealing with deeply vulnerable people, many in desperate circumstances. So what do you consider are the key priorities to be tackled now and in the near future? Yes, Alice, as you rightly point out, the disasters are, are constantly increasing in their severity. Uh, the scales are getting uh, really, really unbelievably large in the sense of people who get displaced. And Pakistan alone, just last year, was confronted with this disaster which displaced about 33 million people. And that really means that something like 3 million households today are without shelter, without food, uh, without really literally nothing. And that is the tragedy of countries like ours, which are frontline states, uh, which continue to suffer. And before we get the chance to have people come up to a certain level, another disaster strikes. So almost every year we've been confronted with either an earthquake or, or a flood. And uh, of course the flood is, uh, uh, has been uh, most devastating this last year. So that's where our effort is to see how, what we can do to be able to uh, help them to be able to help themselves. Because I think the charity model, and I call it the international colonial charity model, which believes in charity, and handouts does not really work. And we've seen that, that although so much funding has been brought into countries like mine, our poverty levels are still increasing. So it's time for us to now change the way that we actually help people uh, in such circumstances. And so based on your practical experience in the field and on the front line, what are the key challenges? What changes need to be made? 
Well, um, as I said, I think uh, rather than looking for uh, grants and for uh, uh, handouts, as I said, I think it's a good idea to try and teach people how to be able to, you know, teach them the skills that will help them survive. And right now, when you look at countries like mine, where most of the basic needs have ne never been met, I mean, even shelter was never really of a kind that could survive these, these uh, disasters. So first and foremost is to see how to teach people how to build safer structures and also to see that in the process we don't uh, use te techniques which will damage the planet. I mean that's the whole issue really. When you build at such a vast scale, how do you devise methodologies that will make sure that you know it's a sustainable way of building? So for instance, if a World Bank grant comes in with I don't know how many millions of dollars, uh, they still insist on making uh, high carbon structures such as uh, brick, you know, burnt brick or, 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 uh, or uh, you know, concrete blocks or steel. And again, the, the uh, carbon footprint will be much higher. There is no need for that. They are single story structures, they are in the rural area, this kind of alien way of, of, uh, of working and uh, you are introducing urbanized forms which are not at all useful for us and so on and so forth. There are lots of, uh, you know, things that are not okay with this kind of aid and assistance. So I feel that what is important for me is to get to the people directly and to see how I can help them to be able to start building. So uh, this is uh, what I've been trying to do since last September. And initially I thought my holistic model will work because it only required about $150 per family where people would become entirely self-sufficient in about six months. They would have the basic needs of a safe shelter, sharing toilets, sharing water supplies, uh, sharing solar panels, uh, and also their, the cook stove that is now very famous, the Pakistan Chula, which is elevated so it's always, it protects, uh, you know, the, the actual cooking device, the, the, the stove from any kind of flood. And that's become very popular, I think, in this last, uh, since April, uh, since, uh, sorry, uh, since, uh, I would say, last September, there's something like more than, a, you know, 120,000 stores that have been built by people themselves, by housewives themselves. And before that, another 80,000 had been built. So it's something that people do themselves, and it's uh, beneficial to everybody. It's got this World Habitat Award. Uh, which was, of course, uh, very important in terms of understanding that this is a need of women, which are mostly neglected. So that's what we are trying to do. And uh, my target, as you they say, is, is quite ambitious. Uh, but we have to find ways to get it done. And in terms of your the number of households completed so far, what's the total? But there's a, there was the problem because I started off with my holistic model and I thought that there'll be enough funding because uh, uh, Pakistan was being promised a huge amount of money by donor agencies, by the, by the UN system, by all the INGOs and NGOs that were around. But I found in April that, uh, or in end of March, that uh, we could build only about not even 5,000, you know, shelters or, or units, one-room houses. And so I was obviously disturbed as to how will I reach my target of 1 million by 2024. So I've started this something called the zero donor model, 
where we are not relying on anybody from anywhere because everything is very slow. And instead, uh, we are teaching people how they can build themselves and do everything themselves. And the, the training is being done by people who are exactly like them. I call it my humanistic humanitarianism. It's got nothing to do with money. It's all to do with solidarity, with benevolence, with people feeling for each other who are trained now and they go and train others. And because they charge a small amount of money, like they charge 30 rupees, which I think is not even not even 10p probably, uh, they, because the scale is so large, they actually make a lot of money every month. And so one by one every day, they go and first teach them stage one is about food security, how can it start growing because so far they've had no water, the, the land is lying fallow, nothing is growing there, but they can actually uh, start growing because it's all flood plain. So we start on that and within 15 days they learn how to start growing vegetables, how to start having chickens and fish. And within a month they're on their way and it costs hardly anything per day for them to acquire all that. And my second stage is to do with having toilets, which are shared toilets, so that can also be done. It takes about two months for the toilets and also for uh, uh, getting on to start building your own one-room houses. So, so far we've got uh, 5,000 houses built. We've got to stage three, now, stage two now in many places and something like uh, almost 10,000 toilets have been built. Uh, but I'm hoping now our attempt to see how we can complete about 100,000 uh, one-room houses by the end of this year. Uh, now, all of them will not be rehabilitated, but I think once the whole thing starts and now that we know it can be done, I think we might be able to go faster next year. And how many people are currently involved in, in this network of learning and then teaching? Uh, I don't know whether we've calculated, but there are, there are a couple of uh, hundred who are really going around and teaching. I mean, each of my, we call them the brigades because they, are, they consider about 12, 15 people. And today there are something like 12 already that are uh, in the field. We've already reached about 1500 uh, villages. And uh, uh, we are training every month, we are tra training at least four brigades, which is about 50 people for this. And then we're also training for individual items, like how do you build a, uh, the shelter, the, the one-room house. And those are separate teams who go and then they, they advise how can they be done. But that also means that uh, everything that's being used is local, it's locally sourced. Uh, they are mostly bamboo roofs now, and they are, they are being produced right there, fabricated right in the area, they're available. Uh, for my toilets, I need uh, terracotta uh, basins that we've designed, and so there are a few villages that are making that terracotta basins. A lot of economic activity that started, and uh, people are beginning to earn money, so that's all I want. I want them to become prosperous, I want them to be food secure, I want them to finally make their own houses, and then I think in the third stage, they should be able to have more water supply, uh, arrangement like they can have more hand pumps for which they will pay themselves and then hopefully later on in about six months I think we should be able to have solar panels as well and then the, of course there's a whole thing about flood mitigation measures I think that will also come so it'll take a little time but I think in a year's time uh, they should be starting to building their own schools as well because once they learn how to save and they learn how to build it's all incremental so whatever they need, they can do themselves. 
and everything is locally sourced, everything is available. And I, I'm very optimistic that we'll probably meet our target. We might, maybe there might be a shortfall, but by and large, I think we'll do it. <laughs> Well, and so many people will have benefited hugely, regardless of whether you you meet your target. And as I understand it, the network of women who are engaged in making and selling chulas, the stoves you talked about, that's run on similar grounds, that women who've been trained how to make them, then train others for a small fee, and, and so on and, and so forth, giving them a cleaner, safer, more sustainable and healthier form of cooking. Oh, absolutely. Uh, women are in the forefront with all this because, uh, you know, a lot of times we forget that when we're talking of disasters and displacement, it's really women that suffer the most. And a lot of times I found in the, in the past, uh, in, in the work that I've also done with a lot of international agencies, that there are very few women who might be in the field. Uh, there's always that kind of scare as to what the conditions might be, how can the women go into the field, and so on and so forth. With the result that women are largely not, I mean, they're really left behind, they're not really taken care of. And because I happen to be a woman, and because I was in the field, I had the advantage of going and talking to them, understanding their issues. I mean, I remember after the earthquake of 2000, 2005, uh, they were women and they were all hamlets, okay? These are very hilly ter terrain. And they were all kind of uh, uh, on different places and nobody had ever been to see them. So all their, all their grief, everything was all within themselves. They never had a chance to talk to others because they are so isolated. And then I found that they had all these skills of crafts. And once you started that, then it's amazing how they blossomed and they started to do so much and started to earn money. So I think it's very important for us to understand that women can do so much. They have the capacity. Uh, they're not given enough importance, but uh, the skills that they have for building are quite amazing. If you talk of mud and earth that I use, I only use, as you know, earth, lime and bamboo. They have all their lives they spent in uh, kneading the dough and making these flatbread. So when they start working in earth, they're the best ones. And then they start decorating them. Now, these are patterns that they've learned, you know, God knows through their mothers and mothers before them. And so it's a tradition of pattern in my country. So they start, in a sense, it's like uh, giving agency to people who really have no voice, that they go and start doing these beautiful decorations and personalizing each item, whether it's the chula, the, the stove, or whether it's the house, which has the earth render, or whether it has uh, hand pumps that are again beautifully decorated because they're all on platforms. So there's so much there that, you know, they get a chance to be able to express themselves. And so that's why they have to be in the lead because they're the ones who need, who need a shelter. They need a roof over their heads. They also need toilets for dignity. They need water supplies. Otherwise they have to go for miles to get some water. And they need the chula to be able to cook in a dignified manner. So there's so much that needs to be done for them and what they are themselves able to achieve. I think it's about time we really put them in the forefront every time, I think. Absolutely. And there's so much research that shows um, evidentially that the gender bias within disaster and emergency relief is hugely problematic for women and girls particularly. So why has this been ignored for so long? Why hasn't anyone taken action? I don't know, Alice. I think all of us uh, have gone there with our own ideas as to what they need. 
and uh, I mean, so many agencies have come and worked in these areas, but they all are with their goodness of their heart. They want to, you know, just give things which may not even be suitable for people because they want the best for them. And uh, I, I, you know, I think culturally nobody has bothered to see what uh, what people need, or what will resonate with their own traditions and so on. You know, there's been not enough work done. And uh, now we are now going to maybe face another uh, flood or, 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 or monsoons very soon. And uh, uh, the country is not ready. Uh, but we are trying now to see that wherever we have the holistic model, because those people are really well off now, they're earning quite well. Uh, something like at least three to 4,000 families are doing extremely well. So the whole, what we try to do is to create a model of what can be done in places where people have become, uh, have come up to a certain level. And then that model is repeated because people learn how to take it forward. And because everybody that goes and teaches anything also earns some money, so it's a self-propelling model. We don't have to worry about where the money will come from. So now it's all about disaster preparedness. Uh, what will they do? Which are the vulnerable groups? How to mark them? How to make sure that they start having enough uh, storage of food and grain and water? I mean, there's so many things that will happen once you know we start having rains, for instance. So even if though my houses will be safe, they will not collapse. Uh, touch wood, they are fine. But there can be loss of other kinds. And so we really have to start be prepared. And I think next year we'll be much better off because we would have got a lot of uh, various elements in place which will protect them. I mean, I, I'm, we're trying to already build these, uh, you know, the lookouts that you have in, um, in forests. So they need every village, every household really, or every cluster needs it where they can start storing their stuff or they can, you know, put their valuables up there. And uh, so those are being done. I need... Uh, we're making a lot of floating, um, uh, a, a kind of vegetable floats for every cluster of a house where they can grow vegetables so that they, are, they have vegetables available at the time that you know there's water everywhere. Because everything just disappears, as you can imagine. So even though I have uh, raised farming in many places, but still, we don't know what will happen. So there are lots of preparation we need to do to be prepared when the, when the you know, flood or, 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 or rains happen. And we have tried to do some, but I don't think I'll succeed. I'm intrigued by the vegetable floats. How, what are they like? Well, you know, because I work in bamboo, we can do everything very economically. And those are produced and then they are bought by people. They Everybody contributes and it's just, you know, again, a no-cost thing. Actually, uh, we've taken the model from Bangladesh where they have these, what they call the uh, floating gardens. So that works quite well. We've already done here. And uh, there are lots of innovation going on around the world, but, you know, isolated and separately. I think the whole purpose today should be for us to see where the, where the, where the best practice is happening. How can you modify and use them within, you know, each country itself? And I think we have to be much more conscious of uh, what we do in terms of, you know, carbon footprint. Even in the humanitarian field, I don't think there's enough kind of consciousness about this. And governments certainly are not, not focusing on that. And we also know that 40%, even as it is, of uh, construction industry uh, is, is you know, really responsible for 40% of all emissions. That's a huge, huge percentage. 
and uh, we need to reduce carbon footprint everywhere not only in the disaster areas but you know wherever we are building so uh, my i've got very simple solutions i say well zero carbon that means zero concrete and zero steel i don't use any of those materials lime i found to be a very good material because it's benign and also it's got lots of health uh, uh, advantages plus it does emit a bit of carbon but then it also absorbs carbon and when i combine with a bamboo which sequesters so much carbon it makes everything carbon negative so if we can use similar materials i don't think that maybe you don't have bamboo but you certainly have lime so why are we not converting at least to lime if if any, nothing else uh, and i know there's a lot of research going on uh, as you probably know i spent the whole of last year uh, i was invited to be their uh, visiting professor at cambridge of sustainable design and uh, i saw there were lots of uh, universities where i was able, able to visit and discuss a lot of research is going on in uk universities alone but i think the problem is they stay within universities we need to see how do you bring it out into the mainstream unless you make everything mainstream things will not happen that fast but the good news is that there are so many people who are becoming aware of it among within our profession in the architectural profession and i think people are striving hard to see what can be done there are undoubtedly many more people who are interested in and passionately engaged with this work in the architectural profession in the global north as well as the global south but how can we ensure that they are as useful as they can possibly be and don't perpetuate the old post-colonial practices that you've talked about what needs to happen to prevent that i've thought quite a lot about it and i think that uh, what's not happening is a, a kind of a platform where you would have possibility of interaction with others who are engaged in the same kind of activity and also to see uh, whatever is available how applicable it is to any one context now my context is very different from yours obviously you know because uh, my world is different but within the uk also i think there are a lot of experimentation that is being done but could more be i think more could be done to see how we could make things as carbon neutral as possible i think there is movements like the you know circularity there's also i mean quite a lot is going on like in terms of you know uh, eco urbanism and how it can relate to traditional urbanism that i believe in uh, there's quite a lot of work being done in china about uh, sponge cities where the water you know there's no flooding you absorb the water into the soil why are we fighting the water so a lot of work is going on but i think we need to do much more in terms of how do you grow certain kind of food what do you do when you have water standing for 6 to 8 months so i'm also designing a like a floating village so that people can just you know they live in that and when the water goes down it just goes down because it's it's not like south asia where you have a uh we have uh, you know constantly a water level which is high with us uh you know the wa- water recedes after some time so then you can't only rely on water you have to find other ways of doing it there are lots of issues like that i think that we need to all be thinking about because everywhere you know alice i really feel that people are not taking it seriously enough but you know what pakistan is going through god forbid we don't know when the next uh, when you know disaster might happen and i think everybody now starts must start be prepared to face that
uh, and sometimes it is uh, predictable countries that are on the fourth line I mean look what happened in Turkey I mean the major disaster was the way the buildings collapsed and the way that uh, you know uh, so many people died 50,000 people died because of the use of concrete alone so why why are we doing all this why aren't we changing the way we design our buildings but also uh, the whole uh, urban pattern has to change why are we going for this high-rise buildings when you can have a perfectly good uh, you know low-rise medium density model I mean you look at your own medieval towns I look at my towns my old towns the walled cities there's so much there that can lead us to the right direction so I think it's about time we all started to think about these issues and you talked about the need to find international models of, of intelligent and imaginative work that has been executed well and, and responsibly. And you mentioned the floating gardens in Bangladesh. Are there any other examples that you feel people can learn from? Uh, in terms of uh, 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 flood, you mean, because we know that more than 50% of all disasters actually are, are water related. So either there are uh, floods or uh, rain or there's also drought. So when you look at everything, there's just uh, plenty that's going on. But I, I can't say that I can pinpoint particular examples because everything that's being done, apart from a few, uh, is rather high cost, high tech or high, high carbon. I think the understanding that we need to now live with water is not quite there, if you see what I mean. I mean, we know that flood will come, but we don't really, we're not preparing for them. I mean, Pakistan has had this Im immense flood since 2010, because we have these glaciers that are melting all the time. So we know we are in the part of the of melting glaciers. We hardly do anything to protect ourselves, you know. And of course, I mean, some things you can do, Something must be done by the government at the macro level, but there's so much that can be done by communities themselves. But if communities are not empowered, if they, are, if they don't know they can do it, they will never do it. So that's why I think any kind of aid and charity that comes from outside is not going to help anybody. Well, they won't know, they won't, you won't build up their capacity to be able to do it. And also, when you give a handout, you really, in a sense, uh, compromise the dignity. You, in a sense, you know, their own, uh, I mean, their self-respect is gone. And so it's very important to say, well, you have the capacity. These are the ways for you to do it. That's why I don't look for funding. I don't ask for anything from anybody except if people are interested. Certainly, we are happy if uh, knowledge is shared. We are happy if, I mean, I don't mind things being given in kind. Like I need a huge number of hand pumps which will make it easier, an easier life for my people. Or I need a lot of solar panels, I, but they should go directly. They should not go into one kind of black hole or, or into, into uh, to intermediaries. There's the technology, there's a way to connect people. That's why I'm talking of the humanistic humanitarianism. We must now not think of as anonymous people who are strangers we don't know, but people who are suffering and how we can help them and should know who they are. Today you can with WhatsApp and everything. So why is it that we still think that, you know, we can just give money or, or, or grants or something and not know who, who it's going for? I, I don't know. I, I don't understand that. So I think we all of us 
change, must change because there's a lot of money that is spent. But unless it's spent in the right way, it won't get there. You see what I mean? And you and others have been very critical of international aid agencies and, and this um, practice of disempowerment rather than empowerment by um, continuing to give handouts. But how can that huge industry, because it is an industry, be restructured to make it fit for purpose? Well, yeah, I, I think, you see, the problem is that everything is much influenced by the capitalist system, where everything is uh, kind of measured in terms of money and funds. And I think that we really have to change the way we, we think about things. As I keep on saying, you know, with COVID-19, you remember that uh, finally it didn't matter whether you were living in a palace or you were living in a shanty, in a shack, there was no difference. COVID did not differentiate between who was who, right? And then we knew at that time that everybody must get the same kind of environment if you all want to survive. And that meant that you have to think of a more egalitarian society, that you make sure that the environment is better for everybody, not for just a few. And we forgot it very quickly now that we're okay with vaccines and everything else. I think we should perhaps go back to those lessons. I think perhaps we should go back to, uh, you know, they said uh, uh, the humanistic values that were actually spelled out in the time of Renaissance, benevolence, empathy, solidarity, all these human values that make it worth living, which we have by and large forgotten, because we're always talking of more money. So I feel that if any help is to come for people who've been affected, they have the right to have it, not intermediaries and other people. Now, how you work at a system by which you uh, now go directly to people, I don't know. I'm trying hard. Um, I've done this whole of last year without taking any fund from anybody. And I've said, well, if you want to uh, help, then please, these are the committees, my community members, mother's committees, you must give it to them. And some people have done that. So gradually, maybe we'll bring about a change. Then everybody's fund, everybody's money that's like a donation or they've, I mean, it's all hard-earned money that's given to charity or to these uh, humanitarian projects. It'll be much, much more effective. Whatever you've saved with your hard kind of work will be used for a good purpose. So I feel that we all have to really now somehow, yeah, we need another model if you want to now deal with this issue. Because now, how much money will you raise, let's say, for my three million households that are today uh, without any shelter? Where will the money come from? It, it just won't happen. And we've, I've seen this every successive disaster. We've never been able to reach out to the people who are affected, maybe only a fraction of them. So now that we know that uh, these disasters are imminent, we know that climate change is a fact of life, we know that we'll never be able to, or at least not in the near future, reach that 1.5 degree centigrade. I think it's a bit of an elusive figure. So we'll continue having these disasters more and more. And then what happens? Where is the money in the world to be able to deal with, you know, everywhere? I know that donor fatigue is already set in. Pakistan did not get the response that it was expecting. But there's so many other things happening. I mean, soon after Turkey happened. 
Syria was affected. I mean, you know, so I think we ought to think, really think about the issue. And for young architects and designers who are really passionate about working in this field, what would your advice to them be? And there are plenty of degree courses they can study at university. Is formal education the correct route? If they want um, first-hand experience on, on the front line, how should they go about that? Or are there other ways in which they could more productively be engaging? I think it's a very good question because, you know, I've been now giving these lectures, especially because of the um, uh, uh, the lockdowns. Uh, I was able to talk to many universities all around the world, actually, because it just opened up everything. And of course, recently with the RIBA gold medal, also I got the opportunity because a lot of people reached out to me. So, and I was teaching at Cambridge and also talking to a lot of young people. So I've had a lot of interaction with them. And they're the ones who are the most conscious, I have to tell you. They're the ones who want to bring about a change. But what I feel is, and I've been now saying it to various institutions such as the RIBA and the CA and also the UIA that, you know, we need to help these young people. So what I'm hearing is that there are so many young people who want now to practice in a different manner, to practice architecture in a different manner. They're very conscious that there's a lot of work to be done in communities. They're very conscious there's a lot of work uh, to be done with you know displaced people everywhere. It's not only the uh, climate migrants, it's also the conflict migrants everywhere who are equally disadvantaged. So it, the problem is everywhere, in every country, literally, you know, that we have to deal with. And these young people really want to do different things now. They are very much conscious of the climate change impact and all the rest of it. But there are very few practices that actually promote this kind of work. And I know that you mentioned there are courses, but there are very few courses in these kind of fields. There are some, yes, but not enough. And uh, and I think we need to be working on that. But I think more than that, I really would like very much that we should start opening these, what I call, architectural incubators in, in universities. I think it could be a three-way partnership where you would get, let's say, the RIBA would uh, direct some of the corporate sector or building industry to support, start supporting the university. Uh, who can then provide the space, mentor these young people, and you do some sort of a supportive, you know, whatever, hand-holding, if you like, for two years for practices or architects who want to go into this field. That would mean they start with that. They don't sort of join a, a flourishing, uh, you know, usual practice where then they are sucked into it and they'll never be able to come back. Because that's, as you know, how it is in, in these large, once you get part of, become a part of it, it's not easy. So I would like that if somehow we can help them to start right from the beginning. And I think universities would be a very good place because the ones who graduate from there, if they, they know that they can carry on, that would be wonderful. So that's one way I feel. The other way I feel is that, you know, there's this, um, the legal profession has pro bono wings, right? Where are our pro bono wings? in the architectural profession. I think that could happen, could be done. There are many practices I know who are doing a lot of work with communities who are allocating a lot of funds for that kind of purpose. There are foundations established by well-known architects. But I think we have to go a step more, a step further, which means that we have to see who can actually establish pro bono wings, which allows young people to be able to work on those uh, particular aspects of community work or uh, 
cultural aspects or uh, environmental aspects, and then, you know, they are they're supported. And once they are starting off in that way, then I think they'll carry on. Uh, the other, my, my two, if you like, my two wishes that I'm trying to promote everywhere and saying, please, let's do that, you know, because I owe it to the young people. Because finally, you know, I mean, I'm just very greatly honored uh, with the gold medal that RIB considered. And I was really worried because I thought, you know, how could anybody accept that in the profession? Because I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm only working for the poor. But ever since then, the kind of really kind of an outpouring of empathy that I've received and, and goodwill from people and young people who feel that the, yes, there's something they would also like to do. So I think my job is. Uh, with this that I should promote as much as possible opportunities for young people where they are able to get involved but they must be given a lot of support. We need aid agencies to see that they put you know professionals in the in the forefront of, of humanitarian work. You'd be surprised how badly these all these uh, projects are, are, are prepared, how poorly because I think the thing is because for the poor, so it doesn't matter what you give them. But that's not fair. We need really good designers to be able to use the, you know, whatever limited resources there are to make the best use out of them. Today, if I can do this, my zero donor model, it's because my structures are very inexpensive because I'm using all the, all the material from the, from the debris and the waste that's around. And I'm, I'm using materials that are just there all around. We don't have to get them from anywhere else, you know. And so, but you need good designers to be working on this. Otherwise, how will you learn what to, I mean, how, how will it be done? So there's plenty to be done. And uh, every country, I think, needs uh, good designers to be in the forefront of all this. Not as a one-off thing, because that doesn't work really. It's very good to do that. But I think you need a consistent kind of, you know, a kind of practices, mainstream practices that will deal with this. As your fellow humanitarian architect, Michael Murphy, said, great design is a human right. And of course, people in, in pecunious and precarious circumstances need it much, much more than the rest of us. Now, Yasmin, as a final question, a couple of years ago, you were interviewed by Ollie Wainwright in The Guardian, and you said that you felt that you needed to atone for your past as a stock architect in the commercial phase at the beginning of your career. Do you feel you've atoned now? <laughs> I don't know, really, Alice, unless I read my target of at least the one million, I'm not sure what I've done enough. I have to get there. Well, but. you do have to get there, but you've done so much, Yasmin, and are clearly intent on doing so much more. Thank you so much for, for your time. Um, we're so delighted that you agreed to be interviewed for Design Emergency, and it's wonderful to hear about your current work and your plans for the future. So thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can find images of the projects that Yasmin has described on our Instagram feed at design.emergency. And we look forward to welcoming you back to Design Emergency soon, when we'll be talking to another global design leader who, like Yasmin, is forging positive change where it's most needed. Goodbye, and goodbye to you, Yasmin. Goodbye. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening.